This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. It's almost 25 years since assured shorthold tenancies became the most common form of private residential tenancy. Prior to that, we had rent-act tenancies and assured tenancies. Certain tenants continue to enjoy those tenancies, not least through succession rights, and they can cause real difficulties for landlords wanting possession. To understand how these tenancies operate, I'm joined today by Joseph Green of our Real Estate Disputes team and Richard Granby of Tamfield Chambers. Welcome both. Joe, let's start with rent act tenancies. These are basically tenancies granted by the private sector landlords before 15 January 1989, or where a tenant has succeeded to this type of tenancy after that date. But perhaps you can give a flavour to listeners of what that protection actually means? Yes, of course. Regulated or rent act tenancies give tenants important rights concerning the amount of rents they can be charged and the circumstances in which they can be asked to leave the property. It allows the tenant or indeed the landlord to apply for a fair rent for the property to be registered, which is a lot lower than the market rent. Once this has happened, the registered rent is the maximum amount the landlord can charge until the rent is reviewed. The landlord can only apply to reassess the rent once one year and nine months has passed since the last fair rent was registered, although the new registered rent will not become effective until a two-year period has elapsed. Unless there has been a change of circumstances, that means the old rent is no longer fair. Rent act tenancies also prevent the landlord from evicting the tenant unless they have obtained a possession order from the court. Some think the court will only order in limited circumstances, as we will discuss. It also potentially gives rights to the tenant's spouse or civil partner or other family members to take over the tenancy in the event the tenant dies, which we will also come on to. Yeah, and I mean, I can see from the mention of uh, rents below market rent, while why certain landlords are, are not so keen on these tenancies uh, continuing. Um, and of course, it is possible for a Rent Act tenant to lose their statutory protection if they cease occupying the property as their residence. Um, Richard, perhaps would you explain a bit more about how that works? Section two of the Rent Act 1977, and that's the act that brings together all of the previous Rent Acts, provides that a former protected tenant, so that's a, a tenant whose original contract and the protection of the Rent Acts, will enjoy a statutory tenancy if and so long he occupies the dwelling house as his residence. Unhelpfully, none of the Rent Acts define precedence, so it's been left to the courts, and the court's approach has been fairly generous to tenants. The word residence means that the dwelling house is occupied as a home, but a person can have more than one home, a case called Langford Properties from 1949. Some of the older case law refers to the idea of somebody having a town residence and a country residence, which is a a slightly dated idea now. And the idea is that the statute protects whatever your home is, and it's not limited to just one home. Occupation of a property as a residence is a question of fact and degree. It's John Brown Limited and a case called Bestwick from the 1950s. In practice, it's usually fairly obvious where somebody lives. Most of us know from our own lives that it is fairly obvious where we and the people that we know live. 
but disputes tend to arise from one of two fronts. The first of which is where someone is absent from a property, but they say they intend to return, or in cases where someone spends a lot of time at another property to the extent where someone might say that they don't really live at the first property. So, for example, in a case called Tinker and Hearn from 1961, the tenant spent six years in a secure psychiatric hospital, or had spent six years in a secure psychiatric hospital by the time the case reached trial. In the county court, the judge held that the tenant still occupied the property as a residence on the basis that her furniture remained at the property, her daughter still lived at the property, and the tenant wanted to return when she was eventually discharged. The Court of Appeal disagreed with this, and held that where a tenant was involuntarily absent, there must be a real hope, coupled with a practical possibility, that the tenant would return within a reasonable time. And, and Tinker and Hearn remains, roughly speaking, the law on multiple home cases to, to this day. Albeit it's the case that every case is fact-specific. For example, in Richardson Green, from the 1980s, the tenant had been absent from the property for two years, having moved in with his elderly parents while they were ill. His parents subsequently died and he inherited their house. He continued to live in that house and he stayed there partly because it was close to where he worked and partly because he was refurbishing it with an intention to sell it. The landlord bought possession proceedings against him on the basis that he lived at his parents' house, but the tenant was able to persuade the court that his residence at his parents' house was temporary. The basis on which this was decided is that he kept the bulk of his possessions at the rented accommodation, visited it periodically, and had been intending to sell his parents' house and move back. So the court concluded that the rented accommodation remained his home and he still enjoyed the protection of the rent tax. In a case called Go for Investments, which is a one of the more extreme cases you encounter, the tenant was absent for 10 years, but the Court of Appeal held that the circuit judge had been entitled to accept that notwithstanding the fact that the tenant had been absent for 10 years, she had kept a visible presence at the property, and once her children, who were being educated overseas, she was living with them while they were being educated overseas, had finished their education, she intended to return. Court of Appeal refused to interfere with the findings of the judge that it remained her home. In Moreland Properties and Dohika, the Court of Appeal was confronted with a case where the tenant had sublet the property, albeit to his brother-in-law and not at a profit. So he'd been absent himself of property for five years. After five years, he'd allowed his brother-in-law to move in. He granted his brother-in-law a tenancy at the same rate of rent at which he'd been paying the landlord. The Court of Appeal held it would be extraordinary if in those circumstances the tenant was able to claim that he, or anyone claiming a right from him, was able to occupy the property or permit somebody else to do so. And it's possible that that case reflects a change of attitudes amongst the senior judiciary to two home cases as the 20th century became the 21st. In practice, where a tenant has actually moved out of a property, the landlord often has other routes to possession. So if a tenant has simply abandoned the property, it's very likely they won't be paying rent and the landlord will be able to bring the claim on the basis of rent arrears and accordingly won't need to prove the property isn't a residence. My own experience of these sorts of cases have tended to be where it's a family member who is in reality occupying the property and perhaps an elderly 
parent has either moved into a care facility or has moved overseas to be cared for by family abroad. In those cases, the landlord was successful. The landlord was successful because we were able to obtain details of the parent's health. In effect, proof there was no realistic prospect of them coming back to the United Kingdom. Uh, so we were able to prove there was no realistic prospect of the tenant returning, and accordingly, they didn't occupy the property as a home. Yes, and you've mentioned abandonment there, of course. How do we go about evidencing uh, where we think a tenant has abandoned a rent-act property? I'll take that. Uh, there are a number of steps you can take to evidence the fact the tenant doesn't live at the property. Often clients will instruct an inquiry agent to undertake a desktop search of the tenant, which will likely include a check of the electoral register, credit reference agencies, company's house records, press articles and social media to see if other addresses are connected to the tenant or indeed if other names are connected with the property. Anything which suggests the tenant may live at a different property or that someone else may live at the property instead of the tenant will help evidence abandonment, although, as Richard alluded to earlier, it is possible for a tenant to have more than one home. Inspecting the property is also a useful step as there may be photographs or other items at the property which clearly show that someone else other than the tenant lives at the property. We have even had clients instructing inquiry agents to carry out covert investigations in different countries, including following the tenants to other properties which they may own or occupy. Yes, there's certainly some fascinating stories on that front. I caught up with one of our inquiry agents a few weeks ago, funnily enough, and he was telling me some great stories about um, successes they've had, and particularly, obviously, with social media these days. Um, you know, people are quite free with where they are and what they're doing and all the rest of it. It's all there. Um, and also discovering perhaps other people being there who shouldn't be. So, um, yeah, it's always worth a, a bit of an explore if you've got some... Um, uh, some suspicions, I think. Um, and the other thing, Joe, that you mentioned at the start of this, of course, is that there's certain implications um, when a rent act tenant dies. Um, so what happens in that scenario? How does this idea of succession work? I'll take that one. Uh, you can have up to two successions to a rent act tenancy, which isn't ideal from the point of view of the landlord who may grant a tenant, they grant the tenancy back in the 1980s and find that the tenancy in some form or another lasts well into the 21st century. Um, there's two successions, the death of the original tenant and the death of the first successor. Now, any successor must be a member of the, the then tenant's family and residing with them at the time of the death. So a member of the family who's living there when the tenant or the successor tenant dies, in effect takes over the tenancy. Um, with the first succession, that can be when the, the joint tenant dies and the process of survivorship, whereby the joint tenancy passes entirely to the other joint tenant, it counts as a first succession. The second succession is helpfully from landlord's perspective to an assured tenancy rather than to a rent act tenancy, but it is, of course, what's known as a fully assured tenancy rather than an assured shorthold tenancy. So, so long as the tenant continues to pay the rent, the, they will still have very extensive rights to remain in the property. 
they certainly do it's it's something that really does actually quite fascinate me because my when I was younger my auntie had uh, she, she used to work abroad occasionally and uh, she was you know sort of travel rep and um and so she rented out her property and um, and she nearly got caught into this sort of stuff um and uh, you know rather uh, unknowingly um and you know luckily it, it all got resolved but um you know with your explanation there Richard you know you can see that you know she could still be dealing with that today and not able to necessarily um get the property back although brings me on nicely of course there are grounds on which <laughs> you can seek possession of a rent act tenancy um so let's talk about those um so how do you go about uh, seeking possession of a rent act tenancy well, the first step is to check whether the contractual tenancy has come to an end and if not serve a notice to quit. Of course, in most cases, the contractual tenancy will already have come to an end, given the passage of time since these types of tenancies were granted. Um, but a landlord uh, can only recover possession if one of the statutory grounds can be established uh, or if the tenant has abandoned the property or if suitable alternative accommodation is available. There are both discretionary and mandatory grounds to obtain possession. For discretionary grounds, which include renters, nuisance and neglect of the property, an order for possession will only be made if it is reasonable to do so. If a mandatory ground is established, an order for possession should follow as the court does not need to be persuaded that it would be reasonable to make the order. However, the mandatory grounds are quite specialist and often require the tenant to have been given prior notice of the landlord's intention before entering into the tenancy and therefore are unlikely to apply. One of the discretionary grounds available is where the landlord can show that suitable alternative accommodation is available for the tenant or will be available for them when the possession order takes effect. It usually requires the landlord to demonstrate the suitability of the alternative accommodation. And if the court grants possession on this ground, a sum for the tenant's reasonable moving costs must also be paid. In practice, though, the landlord often pays the statutory tenant a significant sum in return for the tenant voluntary vacating on the assumption alternative accommodation will need to be purchased. Yes, that's very true. I'm pleased to say I don't think Auntie Ruthie had to do that. I think she came within one of the mandatory grounds. Um, and, and that's been really useful, actually, to, to remind ourselves of all those kind of basic points when it comes to rent act tenancies. I, I mentioned at the start of this podcast about assured tenancies. Um, Richard, perhaps you'd explain what those are and how they differ from the rent act tenancies we've just been describing. Assured tenancies are the revival of the private rented sector in England and Wales. Um, when rent act tenancies were introduced, the majority of people in England and Wales rented. Uh, when the assured tenancy regime was introduced in the 1980s, the private rental market was almost non-existent. And what assured tenancies are is a form of statutory security where the tenant gets to remain in the property with the protection of statute and rights of succession, but where the landlord has rights to recover the property either at the end of a fixed term in what's known as an assured shorthold tenancy, which is the normal tenancy for residential lettings in England and Wales, or in circumstances where the tenant hasn't paid the rent. Um, I've mentioned short shorthold tenancies. 
there is, unfortunately, there isn't a convenient shorthand for assured non-shorthold tenancies, but people generally call them fully assured tenancies. And fully assured tenancies were the default for private residential lettings between 15th of January 1989 and before 28th of February 1997. Um, between those dates, in order to create a assured shorthold tenancy, the landlord had to give a tenant a specified notice, and it can now, after the passage of all those years, be difficult to prove that happened if the tenant denies it and good records weren't kept. A fully assured tenancy is, as I've said, like a rent-act tenancy in the sense that it is a tenancy for life and it can be terminated in roughly the same circumstances. There are, however, some very important differences. Firstly, the rent under an assured tenancy may be at, broadly speaking, market rates. And secondly, the landlord may rely on a mandatory ground for possession, ground eight, if they can prove two months of rent arrears. And in practice, that's used a lot where the landlord is unhappy with their tenant. Uh, there are now, at least, also very limited circumstances in which a new assured tenancy can pass by succession. In order to be assured, a tenancy must be granted to an individual or individuals, so essentially not to the company, and be occupied as the individual's only or principal home. So there's no more having two homes in order to be assured, it must be the only or the principal home. There are some exceptions where tenancies will not be assured, even if the other criteria are met. For example, where the tenant shares accommodation with the landlord, or where the rent is very high, and by very high I mean over £100,000 a year, or very low, by which I mean £250 per year or less, or £1,000 if in London. There is, and this surprised me, no exception based on the length of the lease. So some leases uh, where people think that what they have is a normal long lease, 125-year, 999-year lease, might also be an assured tenancy if the ground rent is above £250 or £1,000 if in London. Well, that's very interesting indeed. Um, and uh, a few people may be looking up uh, some of their leases to see if that might apply. Um, and when it comes to seeking possession of these types of tenancy, um, Joe, how do we go about seeking possession when it comes to an assured tenancy? Well, assured tenancies can only be terminated by serving a notice of intention, known as a Section 8 notice, relying on a ground of possession. The Protection from Eviction Act 1977 makes it a criminal offence for a landlord to evict a tenant from premises, let as a dwelling, without obtaining a court order for possession. Therefore, if the tenant doesn't vacate after the expiry of the period contained in the Section 8 notice, then the landlord has to issue court proceedings for possession of the property. If an order for possession is made, you will then need to request the court bailiff evicts the tenants. Similarly to rent act tenancies, there are both discretionary and mandatory grounds for possession. Examples of mandatory grounds where the court must make an order for possession include the death of the tenant or substantial rent arrears, i.e. more than two months, whilst examples of discretionary grounds which the court has a discretion whether to make an order for possession or not include suitable alternative accommodation, breach of an obligation contained in the tenancy agreement and nuisance.
can actually be quite interesting how some of this works out in practice. Um, sometimes property litigation can be quite dry, sometimes it can be quite amusing, and what has been quite amusing over the years is the attempts sometimes people make to prove that they live somewhere that they quite obviously do not live. So as Emma's already said, um, Facebook is a wonderful tool. If you want to say you live somewhere and you don't, firstly, don't have an open Facebook profile. And secondly, don't tag yourself at your partner's house, the other side of London. Um, also, what people, landlords can do when to get a disclosure is to get utility bills. So judges' reactions when someone attempts to convince the judge that the reason they haven't used any electricity or water for a year is because they shower at the gym and they don't put the lights on, uh, then you tend to know you're onto a bit of a winner. Um, but the the golden rule for anybody uh, looking to say they live somewhere they don't is um, keep your social media keep your social media private. Is <laughs> which is probably a good recommendation all around, frankly, Richard. <laughs> I'll I'll just about forgive you for calling property litigation dry. Just did not just don't know what that's about uh, but that has been a really <laughs> I like Elise Joe will tell you I like Elise um, but I, I, I used to do I, I used to do a lot of um, injunction work uh, I just come home with interesting stories and now I ask my partner about fiance ask my fiance about once a week um, do you want to hear a story about Elise and she says no Richard I don't want to hear a story about Elise and we move on to me not talking about my job anymore <laughs> which is very healthy, very healthy for all relationships. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both for that really useful tour of Rent Act uh, and Assured Tenancies. I'm sure our listeners can feel free to contact either of you if they've got any questions about these types of tenancy or any other landlord and tenant related queries. Um, but in the meantime, we hope everybody is staying well and look forward to speaking to you again very soon. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.